Hey everyone, welcome back to Speaking to Stacy. Let me do my medical disclaimer to begin with. I have created this podcast and website, including any references, links, or other knowledge resources for informational purposes only. I do not provide any medical or professional advice on the website and podcast. Anything said should not be taken as a replacement for medical, clinical, professional advice, diagnosis, or medical intervention. If you take any action or inaction as a result of any of the content you consume on the website and podcast, this is based solely on your decision, and I cannot be held liable for any of the consequences of such action or inaction. Right, with that important information out of the way, let me introduce my guest. Today I had the pleasure of sitting down with former South African rower Leanne Purse. She also hosts a podcast in partnership with the Girls Only Project. And I'd love it if you went and checked out their podcast. She told me you can either jump onto Google or one of the podcast players you use and just type in Girls Only Project and you should be able to find their content there. Lee and I touched on many, many topics today. These include her perspective on why so many female rowers are leaving South Africa to go overseas, her experiences in the 2012 and 2016 Olympics, and the lessons she learned and applied from 2012 to 2016. She also explained to me how putting too much pressure on oneself can also be a negative thing. So without further ado, here's Leanne Purse. Hi Lee, how are you today? Yeah, I'm great. Thank you. And yourself? I'm very good. Um, everybody, I'm with Leanne Purse today, and she's going to share her story with us. And Lee, I think best thing, I'll normally start with an introduction to my guest coming from themselves. So do you want to give a brief background of where you got into the sport, which sport you participate in, all that stuff? I think it's better coming from you. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, so my... Yeah, I guess my main sport was rowing um, and I got into it when I was at school, um, but not early on. I actually only kind of started when I was around 16, 17 years old, so um, quite late in terms of starting a sport at, at school level. Um, but yeah, I kind of just started by chance. A lot of my friends were doing it and they needed, you know, some extra people and they were like, you're quite tall. Um, you look like you could be good at it, come and, uh, you know, try it out. And they were actually doing a um, an ergo trial, so like a 2K max trial on the rowing machine um, that day. And I was like, okay, you know, cool, like how hard can it be? Um, let me go give it a whirl. And, um, yeah, like just jumped straight into the deep end and did the, did the trial. And, yeah, I actually did pretty good. I think it was mainly because I – had no idea what I was getting myself into so it, I was like no fear um threw myself in did the trial and got like quite a good good time and yeah from then on never really looked back like I had a really good uh was really lucky to have a really good coach at school at the time and he you know kind of saw the talent in me I guess saw the talent saw the the drive um and I don't even know how it happened. What he kind of mentioned to me was like, you know, what, what, what would your aspirations be like as an athlete, you know? And I think before rowing, I was kind of into 
tennis and hockey, more ball sports stuff. And I was always thinking like, you know, I'll play hockey for South Africa or I really want to go to Wimbledon for tennis. You know, like kids have these dreams in their heads. And I was like, well, whatever sport I do, I want to try and do it at the highest level that I can. So I guess for rowing, that would be the Olympics. And he said, well, I have like, you know, I have no doubt that you could get there. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Let's go. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so... Yeah, so I was like, basically from then on, I did basically everything in my power to do whatever I had to do to be really good at it. Um, you know, like I think even my matric year, I considered moving schools to go to Joburg to do my matric year at a different school so I could row with a different person so we could try and um, uh, qualify for Junior Worlds that year. I didn't end up doing it in the end. It just was not good. The logistics were just going to be a bit of a nightmare, but I mean, I kind of got to that extent where I was like, you know, it's I'll do all anything I can to get to the level that I want to get to. Um, and, yeah, I think that's kind of where my my head was at and, um, and yeah, where my drive was at at that time. Okay. Um, yeah, so that's kind of how I got into the sport. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's, oh, that's so different to so many other people I've spoken to. Most people, you know, it's – they start playing from a young age because dad is was keen on that sport. I mean, that's what happened with me. I played the sports yeah. that my dad played when he was younger. And from geez, as early as I can remember, I was playing a sport, You know, whether it be tennis or cricket or rugby. I always had a ball in my hand from a very young age. My dad was very big on that. Yeah. So that's, oh, that's very interesting. 16, that is very, very late. So obviously, I mean, yeah. from my from the outside looking in and from what the coach said about you being able to go to the Olympics, it clearly seems that you were naturally gifted at rowing. Is it fair to say that? Yeah, I would say definitely I had kind of like the strength needed um, for that level of the sport. I obviously had a lot of work to do in terms of my technique and learning how to row and learning how to move the boat. Like it's quite a um, – I don't know if intricate is the right, right word, but technically you have to be quite sharp and, you know, it, it can come down to kind of like millimeters and seconds, you know, at the, okay. at the top level. So it's very, can get very specific. So I had a lot, a lot to learn in terms of how to row and how to move the boat. But in terms of, I think particularly within South Africa, in terms of how strong I was and the speed that I was rowing at then, um, yeah, I had kind of some natural talent, okay. um, and I just needed to put a lot more hours in to get to where I wanted to be. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Very, very cool. And I just wanted to, while you were talking, I was thinking about rowing as a sport in general. Is it a big sport amongst the female population or is it still quite dominated by, by the, the men? Cause I see when I was at school it from, my perspective, it always seemed that there were a lot more males doing rowing than females. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think there are a lot more, lot more men rowing than, than females, especially in South Africa when we get right to the, to the top and to the higher level. Um, we, we are definitely struggling, struggling with keeping females in the country to row. Um, I think there are a lot of us rowing. And I'm not sure where we're getting it wrong, but a lot of the, the girls are leaving high school and then going on to the States, getting okay. scholarships and bursaries and, and starting to row there or going to the UK. Um, 
so and a few men are but not that many and I don't know yeah I'm not quite sure kind of what we're missing and where we're going wrong with that but um but yeah there's definitely um yeah we seem to be kind of focused more on the on the on the, on the men um and maybe it's because we've had more success on the on the side with male rowing than female rowing. I'm not sure, okay. but um, I wouldn't say there's like like if we brought all those women back from the states, you know, we'd probably be pretty equal um, okay. and at the at the highest level. So, but I think yeah, overall, I think there is a bit of a dis- discrepancy. I think there is generally more men rowing than, than females at the school level. It's obviously got the big schools. You know, you've got like St. Benedicts and St. Johns and. I mean, they just like bus, you know, boys into the into the uh, rowing shed and, and get them on the water. So, um, so th- yeah, there definitely is more there. But but the girls' schools are doing well as well. The, the South African okay. girls' schools are really doing some good work um, at that level and really trying to yeah get the girls on the water. So there's definitely work being done. Um, but we have a lot of work to do after after school. You know, varsity. Um, and then into the senior level, there's a lot of lot of work to be done there. Yeah, very interesting. So, I would guess, I mean, I don't know anything about rowing to be honest, but I would think mm. it's very much like some of the other sports in South Africa, the, the smaller sports in comparison to rugby, soccer, and cricket, where the opportunities, unfortunately, especially when you're looking at university and those kinds of things, probably lie away from South Africa just from the 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 resources aspect i can imagine american there would be some american colleges and european colleges that have huge programs for rows so and i don't know if that's comparable to anything we've got in south africa so maybe that's why they're heading overseas just for opportunity yeah i mean it's not comparable what they what they have overseas what they have in the states what they have at the universities is is mind-blowing compared to what we can offer obviously like at the university level in South Africa, it's, it's just crazy. You can't even compare the two. So yeah, so it's definitely the opportunity there. I mean, I don't know if it's, uh, yeah, how women see themselves, you know, I think often men go into university and they tend to carry on with sport or like club sport or team sport, stuff like that. And I think women often don't follow suit. Um, you know, I think it's just in general, women in sport is something that, um, you know, we need to feel more comfortable with it. And, um, yeah, it's just, I think there's always been kind of a discrepancy there. Mm. Um, and, and women just need to feel comfortable that they can, like, pursue sport and, um, and not be kind of judged for it or, yeah, whatever. Like, women can be out – out in the in the sports field, like they can be there. It's they have a yeah, place there. 100%. So I think it's it's maybe that like conception that women haven't always been seen in that light, um, yeah. and we're trying to yeah move move past that. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I've seen friends of mine. A lot of them live in the UK, and they just the one thing that a few of them have commented on is just how big the women's sports are there compared to South Africa. Um, so I think it's also just yeah it, it differs from place to place, and I think I mean again I could be wrong here, but I just get the, the feeling that in advanced countries with 
with bigger budgets, they're just able to develop not just women's sports, mm. even men's sports, that just the infrastructure mm. for all sports in those countries just I think we just as South Africans we can't compare with or can't compete with that because I mean it's just from an economic standpoint, we're not in the best shape compared to those countries. So I think that yeah. is also a big factor. How much budget can our government give to sports compared to those countries? It's it's a bit of a systemic problem as well. So it's yeah, yeah. a big one to solve. Yeah, definitely. And then I you mentioned something there talking about giving back to the sport or encouraging girls to get on a platform. Are you involved at all to to help rowing in South Africa or is it something that you'd like to do more of? Um to be honest, it's actually something I spoke to someone about the other day. They're like, how involved are you with with rowing still? And I'm actually really I'm not that involved. Um it's quite difficult. Um, I, yeah, actually after I stopped rowing or I retired, I coached for a little bit. So I went and coached at one of the schools in Joburg and then I coached at a, at a junior level as well. So I I went overseas with, with the junior team, I think, yeah, twice, I think I went overseas. Um, and then I actually moved to Cape Town and I, and I coached at UCT a little bit as well. So I, I guess in some way that was me kind of giving back a little bit. Um, but you, you want to be involved, um, as much as you can. And like, I'm always happy to do talks at, you know, prize givings or awards evenings or, or like club events or whatever it is. Um, and like, that's always something that I'm, I'm more than happy to do and, and probably, probably should do more of. Um, but I think, you know, you get like caught up in, in your own life, <laughs> once you like leave your sport, you just like, gosh, okay, now I, you know, I have to have a job and do all this kind of stuff. And, um, yeah. And, and you want it, you know, that you want to give back and you want to help, but it, it becomes more difficult and you almost have to like kind of try and make time in your, in your year to, you know, do something and make sure that you're not losing touch with, yeah, with the sport that gave you so much, I guess. Um, and sometimes I feel bad. I'm like, sure, I should. I should be doing more. I really should. Um, but it's, okay, yeah. yeah, it becomes difficult. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I know the feeling it's just life happens, I guess. And then mm. you've got so much, you've only got so much time to split between all your, all the things that you're doing. And yeah, yeah you got to, you got to choose opportunity costs. You got to choose where you can put your time. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, for sure. And when you were doing coaching, did, and when I did coaching, so I did coaching for rugby, and the reason why I want yeah. to ask this is because the experience that I had, I had a knee injury, so I kind of had to pull away from the sport in terms of playing it because I just made a decision that the injury, if it had to happen again or if I had other injuries, serious injuries, because I tore my ACL, and okay. I just thought, you know, I'm not going to be a professional rugby player. I was just playing for fun up at UCT. And I made the decision that I'm not going to go any further than this level where I didn't think at the time. So I'm not going to continue to put my body in harm's way um, for sort of, you know, recreational rugby. And then I went to coaching at prep school level, helping kids with their rugby. And part of me, like, it made me a little bit sort of hungry to play the game again. It was almost sad in a way because I knew I, I, I couldn't really. Mm. Um, did you feel that way when you were coaching or, or was it not like that for you? 
Um, I definitely went through ups and downs of having that feeling. I think at times I was like, I never want to touch a boat again. I never want to get in a boat again. I don't even want to touch a rowing machine. Like I don't want to do any of that. I'm so glad I don't have to do that anymore. And then there are definitely other times, you know, when like when you're having success as a coach or your athletes are doing well um, or you see there's like a lot of improvement being made and they're making progress and they, you know, things are clicking and the boat's moving and um, – and I think it's those times where you kind of remember back to your days when you, you know, had breakthroughs and sessions or whatever and you were like, yeah. and then you start to think like, oh, it would be so nice to be back there and, um, you know, maybe I should, maybe I should get back in the boat, maybe I should give, give it a go. And, I, and I've tried a few times. I definitely, well, maybe not a few times, maybe like one or two times, I definitely gave it a go to try and kind of make a comeback. Um, and I actually did it recently. It was... Um, yeah, just after the Tokyo Olympics, I, okay. I, I gave it a, I gave it a go. The coach, kind of South African rowing, kind of took a bit of a facelift, and there was a new coach, and and he kind of reached out to me and was like, "Have you been thinking about this? Why don't you try? You never know." And I don't know how he convinced me, but he did. Um, <laughs> and so I actually, yeah, trained, started training again for like two or three weeks. Um, and, and yeah, and then I actually was out on a training, I was running the one day and I was like, I had an epiphany. It was like the weirdest, one of the weirdest moments of my life. And this might sound quite weird, but I literally just said to myself, I was like, why am I doing this? Why do I want to do this? Do I really want to go back here? And I literally go back to the run <laughs> and I phoned him and I was like, I'm out, I'm done. <laughs> I'm not, <laughs> I'm not coming back. This is, I think it was that last push, you know, I'd, I'd, for a while in the back of my mind, I'd had this feeling like, am I really done? Um, maybe I can go back. Maybe there's still, still opportunity for me. And I think trying to make the comeback almost, you know, made me realize that I was, no, I'm done. I'm not, I can't go back there. So, okay. um, so yeah, it was a, it was a really good thing that I did um, to try and make the comeback because yeah, it just solidified the fact that I was, yeah, I was finished and that I didn't want to, okay. didn't want to carry on. Yeah. Okay. So was it, was it a case of your heart not being in it or was it just uh, other reasons? Was it a mental thing? Was it an emotional thing? Or was it just, you'd said to yourself that you were done and then that whole experience just kind of reiterated to you that you made the right decision when you stepped away the first time? Yeah, it was a few things, actually. I think a lot of the stuff that I struggled with started coming back and I started okay. remembering, like, the things that were difficult about, you know, my time rowing, um, the financial strain that I took, uh, the strain that my family took, um, relationship strain. Um, it was kind of like all the negative things started coming back, you know, you, the difficulties yeah. of – uh, sponsors and you know how you're going to get through the month and traveling and um and then okay if I do another Olympic cycle I'm going to come back and then I'm going to have to almost start the whole work thing again you know then I'm going to be yeah. four years older and I'm still not going to you know I'm still only I'm going to have really worked for like three years of my life and then <laughs> and and you kind of just start to think about all those things again and then, and um for me it just wasn't worth it, it it's just not. Okay not worth it for 
and it's so difficult to say because I mean I think as an athlete you want to reach the pinnacle like yes you want to get the Olympic Games but you also want to stand on the podium and I think you yeah. always think like can I get there can I get there can I get there and eventually you got to get to a point where you just like all the sacrifices that I have to make all the things that I have to give up um it's not worth it um for me yeah. personally it's not worth it I know for other people it might be but um the strain that it put on parts of my life were just it it was too much and yeah okay. I had to just make the decision that that I couldn't do it yeah that's that's one thing I think that a lot of people don't really talk about or don't really see from the outside they just see the athletes on the TV mm. and think oh it must be great to be an Olympic athlete, you know, <laughs> you're out there doing what you love and all this stuff. But unfortunately, there are some some aspects to the sports that aren't always pretty to the people that are actually involved. That's very interesting that you had that experience because, yeah, I mean, you don't, you'll never hear that, you know, from rugby players or soccer players because it's so well funded that it's if they make it, it's always worth the sacrifice of getting there. Yeah, but your experience, it, it seems like there was real downside if it didn't work out yeah there's always you know there's always a pinnacle of your sport and there's always a pinnacle of where you get to and all the everyone on the outside sees the uh, sees the triumph and sees the good times um but and and i think even even in sports where people are supported and paid and can make a living i think even within those sports there are those athletes still struggle um, and I yeah. think they also talk about it. I mean, I think as an athlete, you just, it's a difficult and often like lonely road um, yeah. where you like sit with your own thoughts in your own head a lot of the time and like fight your own battles um, in your head. So for me, even if you're like in a team sport, like you just, sometimes you feel like you, you, you're on your own, you're by yourself, you fighting battles in your head on your own. Um, yeah, an athlete life is like, it's, it's weird. If you, even if you struggling for like every, you know, rand that you earn or you fully funded, like there's always going to be parts that are difficult. <laughs> um, and, and that's what, like, I think that's what makes it when you achieve and when you reach your goals, like that's what makes them so, yeah, like that's why we get so emotional and like there's often tears and there's like, it's almost like you've been holding on to something for so long and so and it's like building up, building up massive pressure and then you like achieve what you want to achieve and you can just let everything go. You know, it's almost like this massive release. So, so yeah, I think I definitely don't take away from athletes who are fully funded. They put, they're still putting in the work. Parts of their journey are just a little bit easier definitely than, than athletes who you know, have struggles with support and funding and travel and varsity and work and, and all the extras. Um, but, yeah, at the end of the day, we all want to achieve the same thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Got you. Maybe we can talk a little bit about your rowing career as a South African rower. Um, yeah. And maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. So I will tell you sort of what I understand your mm -hmm. background to be and then you can jump in and cut me off if I'm if I'm cool. not right <laughs> so uh, I was I spoke to Jade about it a little bit and she said yeah. that you qualified for the 2012 Olympics and the 2016 Olympics yes yeah that's right okay and 
you don't do single rowing. You do. Sorry, let me just check my notes. You do what's called co- coxless pair rowing. Yeah. Is that correct? Yes, correct. Okay. Coxless pairs. Yeah. All right. So before you jump into talking a bit about your rowing and your yeah. experiences at the Olympics, can I quickly ask you? Because it's it's just fascinating to me. What what is the purpose of the cox if you can have a coxless pair, for example? <laughs> so what is the function sure. of the cox? The cox doesn't doesn't row, right? It's, no. it's more like a okay. Yeah, so because a, a lot of people at school school told me that I should cox. Um, I'm quite I'm quite small. Yeah. So I at school I weighed like sixty kilos. Okay. And I'm. Very extroverted, very talkative. Yes. Um, so people said to me, "You should, you should come to the rowing side and be the cox." But it clashed with my summer sport, which was cricket, and okay. well, I play cricket and tennis, so I couldn't. Yeah. But it's always just interested me as to what the cox actually does. Yeah. So I mean, the cox is um, ultimately only really used in bigger boats. So back in the day, there was a coxed pair. Um, which is quite a, well, actually not so long back there, but back in there, it was an Olympic event. It's not an Olympic event anymore. Um, but sometimes they still have it at world champs and, uh, we've actually taken a cox pair to world champs before, but it makes the boat quite heavy because obviously it's only two people and they're basically carrying now a third person who's like dead weight in the boat. So it's, <laughs> it's quite a slow, slow boat. It's quite a slow event and it, yeah, it takes its toll on your back. Um, but okay. yeah, essentially they more for the bigger boats, like the eights or the fours. Um, that's where we see the coxes in there. And essentially their job is to steer the boat, but also to motivate. Um, so, so okay. they, they, they have a massive role in like, um, we always see them in the eights, um, you know, sitting there shouting at the, at the rows and, and yeah, ultimately they steer the boat, they, they keep the boat straight, but they also have a big okay. job in terms of like, where are we in terms of the competition? Like, is someone coming up on us? Do we need to catch someone? Telling the crew where they are, um, guiding them, motivating them. Um, yeah, it's quite a okay. cool little, um, like, it's quite a cool person to be, especially, I don't know if you watch, like, o- Oxford Cambridge Boat Race. Like, they have a massive yes. role to play there because that's on a river. So, I mean, we race in, in lanes, so it's quite easy to keep just keep the boat straight in the lane. But on when you're racing okay. on a river in a boat race situation, you know it's taking the right line, finding the fastest water, um, not okay. crashing, all that kind of stuff. So, so the cocks can have, yeah, quite a fundamental role when it's when it's those river races. Yeah, there's so much technical stuff in rowing that as a as a layman to the sport, yeah. As you're talking, I'm realizing, holy moly, there's so much that I don't understand. You know, finding the fastest water, for example, it makes so much sense. But it's not something that I would, from the outside, sit and think that that's something that you're obviously actively pursuing while you're in the – and and it makes sense to have a cox who's doing that because Mm. the rowers are engaged in the process of getting the boat moving and going and you need someone actually that's disengaged to actually do all that stuff for you. Yeah, no, 100%. Yeah, you focus on – on your job, putting the blade in the water and getting the boat going as quickly as possible and the cox focuses on all the rest. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Okay. okay, very interesting. And is it, um, was it just an anomaly at the school? I went to, to Bishops in yeah. Cape Town and the, the, the boys there, the coxes were always smaller guys. Is that an anomaly or is that normally the case that they use someone smaller because of the weight factor? Yeah, smaller because of the weight factor. So like, and they've got to fit into the boat. So, Usually, okay. like, yeah, they're really skinny, they're really short, 
Uh, they're really small and they really have a massive attitude. <laughs> Usually they're like <laughs> the most confident people in the boat. <laughs> okay. That's so interesting. Yeah. A bit of short man syndrome Yes, in there. exactly. <laughs> You've got to have it. Uh, yeah. Classic. Okay. All right. Sorry. Go, going back to okay. your, your Olympics experiences, uh, maybe you can start at the the 2012, yeah. I'm guessing it's obviously Summer Olympics because yes. you wouldn't be able to put the boats in the yeah. water <laughs> in the winter. Yeah, yeah, Summer Olympics. So, um, yeah, so 2012 was London. That was my first Olympic Games. Um, still fairly young um, in terms of how long I'd been rowing for. So, yeah, 2012 I'd been rowing since 2006, so six years, which is not um, a long time to be rowing to kind of go to go to the Olympics. Um, and I'd only been to one world champs and done a few races overseas. But, but yeah, I kind of was like a deer in the headlights, I would say, going into my first Olympic Games. Okay. Um, obviously very excited, but had high, high hopes and high expectations. And looking back, probably misaligned expectation of what we could achieve. So there was a lot of disappointment that came with our first Olympic Games, which often makes me sad because I think your first Olympic Games should always just be, just go and experience it. Like, yes, you know, we kind of had this expectation that we could have maybe done quite well, um, but in reality we couldn't have, so we should have just gone and enjoyed ourselves. And I think we probably actually would have done better if we had done that. But we kind of got there. Okay. And um, I think for me personally, I let the whole – kind of event just get the better of me I just really struggled with nerves anxiety um kind of stress around the racing and performing and um you know like making people proud and so a lot of like outward affirmation um and not just kind of focusing on what I needed to do and I think I was just like a okay. I was still young um I hadn't had a lot of racing experience I hadn't had an experience at this kind of level I didn't feel like there was a lot of support around like my mental status. Um, during the event, um, I actually, I, we actually did little to no mental prep before London. Um, so, so yeah, it was, it wasn't a great experience in terms of racing, but looking back, it was exactly what we needed to be like okay that's what the games is about now how do we <laughs> how do we you know not let any of this stuff happen again and how are we so much better prepared for the next one so gotcha. i think um it was a massive learning lesson for me but i think yeah i would have i don't regret any of it i think i just would have liked to have enjoyed it a lot more um <laughs> and like taken it all in so it yeah it's yeah. not like i didn't enjoy it but it was it was a tough a tough event when I think about it, there was a lot of like, yeah, a lot of emotions involved. Like I have a lot of memories of me, like, yeah, just, just being very nervous for the racing and letting that get the better of me and kind of quite a lot of tears and stuff. So it was, yeah, it was quite a, quite emotional event for me. Um, and yeah, I just won that. I guess I just learned a lot from, yeah. Okay. I guess also it's probably easier looking back and saying to yourself, okay, wow, these are the mistakes we made in preparation and maybe we should have done this and this differently. 
Um, but in the moment when you're there at the Olympics and everything's happening right in front of you, it's very difficult to, to grab that kind of perspective because you're in it. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I've never competed at the level that you have, um, but I have played provincial sports uh, with just with squash. And I found that I never – squash to me was always my third sport. So I never took squash really super seriously, but I loved playing it. Um, it was really great for my fitness as a rugby player. So, And I found that I often played extremely well against opposition that was maybe a little bit better than me. And I think it was because I always went in like very relaxed and no expectations mm. and I'm just here to have fun. So it's interesting that you that you highlighted the fact that maybe you took it almost you guys took it a bit too seriously. Yeah. Um and you didn't didn't allow yourselves to enjoy the moment. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I think that's yeah, it probably hit the nail on the head then. I think it it was like that. It was just we put far too much pressure on ourselves for something that we shouldn't have. Um and yeah, it just goes back to kind of having the right team around you, having a team that you trust, people that you believe in and that will tell you really, you know, how they how they think you are going as a boat and really how fast you are. And, and you know, like afterwards we had, you know, then coaches come up to us and kind of say to us, you know, I, I knew you were never going to perform. Like I could see it. And I was like, well, <laughs> you know, why didn't you tell us that beforehand? So, but it's, yeah, it's, thanks a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's difficult because you obviously don't want to, um, you want to build the athletes up. And I think as, yes. as a kind of support team, um, yeah, I think we just hadn't got that right yet. We were still learning. Um, okay. South African rowing was still growing. Okay. And I think, especially in terms of women's rowing, and um, and probably dealing with athletes. I think we had very male dominant um, support staff, coaching staff, and um, it's very different. Like I'm just going to put it out there, it's very different to deal with female athletes and male athletes. We work very differently. 100%. We um, yeah. we are a lot more emotional. We think about things differently. We process things differently. And it was just learning that, and we didn't. There wasn't time for us to do that. So. So yeah, it was just a very kind of escalated, um, yeah, journey to get to, us to the games. We're kind of like in a rush to let's qualify the boat, let's get to London, let's you know get a women's pair into the Olympics, um, and that kind of was okay. the main main goal. And we did that, and that was great because it you know built momentum, um, but it was a little bit at the cost of of the athletes. So. Um, Okay. But yeah, lessons learned. Lessons learned. <laughs> yeah, always good to take take lessons and out of the bad times. Yeah. I think that's where we learn the most. Actually, yeah, exactly. Um, there are quite a few few things you spoke about there. I just want to just pick into a little bit deeper. Cool. Uh, I think it's absolutely fascinating that you you said you started rowing in what two thousand five, two thousand six. Yeah, two thousand and five. I think it was. Yeah. Okay, and then you were at the Olympics within sort of six, seven years, how many, how many big races had you done? Had you done things like world champs or anything like that? So how many big races had you competed in prior to going to the Olympics? Cause I mean, I'm just thinking of it from different athletes perspectives. You'll have some athletes that will run at Olympic games and they've had years and years at that mm. level, you know, competing in world mm. champs and diamond league events and things like that. So for you, it's, it sounds Yo, that's very, very hectic. You were almost launched in there with very little preparation just for that level of 
uh, experience, yeah. I guess, if you want yeah. to Yeah, so my first year of international racing was 2010. I went and we did the World, um, World Cups. So those are kind of, um, yeah, like they're three World Cups in a year and um, and you usually race two, probably two of them. Um, and then you have like variations of other countries who, you know, you'll race against, but it's not world champs. So, yeah, so we raced World Cups in 2010. I think we raced two of them. Um, I got actually injured. I got, I got a stress fracture in my rib, actually, which took a while to heal. And then I think I injured my back and my partner got like a, um, I think, tendonitis in her, in her forearm or something like that. So we oh, didn't wow. end up going to World Champs that year. So we didn't go to World Champs in 2010. So that was a, quite a big okay. loss for us um, because it would have – you know, being a, a great, uh, yeah, another great kind of racing experience from us to race at the world champs. But unfortunately we didn't go there. And then 2012 or 2011, yeah, we went to world cups again. I changed partners. Um, so rode with someone new in 2011 and that year we had to go to world champs to qualify for London. So you, so the year, the, the world champs before, the Olympics, the year before the Olympics, is your qualification. And you have to come. Okay. Different boat classes have different um, requirements. But I think we had to come top 10 or 11, and we came six. Um, so, okay. yeah, which was just, like, fantastic for us. We were just like, okay, this is amazing. We're going well. Um, new partnership. Haven't been together for long. Um, yeah, we were, like, over the moon. So, so yeah, it was awesome for us to qualify at world champs and then in 2012 i think we must have raced some world cups um i can't even remember actually 2012 um, what we did before london but yeah i'm sure we raced some world cups and then and then yeah raced at the at the olympics that year yeah so not a lot of racing okay. not a lot of international experience okay. yeah and going back to your partner how does one select their partner when it comes to rank because I mean, obviously, there's got to be some level, I'm assuming, of chemistry with the other person in the mm. boat. I mean, you could have two fantastic rowers. I, I can imagine a situation where the best two individuals might not be the best team. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, obviously, I kind of am not the one selecting my partner. Um, it would oh, okay. be – we would have to go through a selection process. There would be a whole lot of girls. Well, not a whole lot, but – you know, I think we had a few to choose from. Um, and, yeah, it's kind of finding the best fit. It's not always about if you get along with the person or not. It's kind of like what makes – what combination makes the boat go fastest. So okay. um, that was kind of what came down to it at the end. And, yeah, Nadine, the girl that I ended up going to London with, um, yeah, we had the – we were the fastest combination at the time. So – Okay. So that was kind of how we got selected. Um, and, and yeah, from there, you often have to, to make it work. Like, you know, some people that wrote together hate each, hate each other. <laughs> Hate's probably a strong word. But, um, yeah, you don't – you maybe not friends out of the boat. But in the boat, you yeah. are dynamic together and you, and you make the boat go fast. So you make it work. And, and that's also another dynamic to rowing is that you have to find a way to get along with the person that you're rowing with. Um, which is also can be tricky, yeah. Can be can be a hard part of it. So, so yeah. 
That's that's super interesting because I've never I've never done a sport where there's two people. Mm. I've, it's either been me or there's been a bigger mm. team. So if you don't click with one or two of the guys, it's okay because you generally get on with the other people in the team. But you're and it's just the two of you. And as you say, you know, you're not necessarily going to be friends outside of the boat. I guess if you if you're working towards the same thing in the bigger picture, it it can work out. But it's yeah, that's an interesting interesting take that I didn't really think about. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, yeah. As you say, like when you're working towards the same thing, you you will make it work. Um, but yeah, not to say that we definitely didn't have our difficulties getting there. I mean, if you probably spoke to Nadine, <laughs> she would tell you I was one of the most difficult people <laughs> to row with. And <laughs> um, we were very, very opposite in terms of personalities. And I think we were both okay. still growing as, as people and as athletes and learning how we, um, yeah, like how we interact with each other and how we interact when we're stressed and nervous and, all those things like play their part. Like people change when they start getting nervous or when they start stressing or when um, they're frustrated. Um, and, you know, you've got to learn, like you can't take it out on your partner. You can't take it out on your coach. Okay, how do we talk about this? How do we navigate this? Um, so it gets, yeah, there's a lot of dynamics to it. <laughs> that's a fascinating dynamic because that's tough when you when you only have – each other mm. to sort of lean on if and then if you in a high pressure high stress environment and then the wheels start yeah. coming off i can imagine they must have must have experienced there must be some times where it was a bit messy but, yeah definitely uh, yeah we definitely threw some verbal punches <laughs> at each other <laughs> um yeah i i can de- i definitely have it clear in my mind a few times where we had some some good um arguments um, and, but it's almost like when those happens, it's just because we kind of let things boil up, you know, we kind of push things down because we didn't want to cause conflict. You don't want to fight with the person that you're rowing with. You don't want to offend them. You don't want to hurt their feelings. And then you kind of push that all down. But then eventually you get to a point where you're like so frustrated. The boat's going so badly. You don't know what to do. You just like, everything comes out and it's like this, you know? kind of like a Hiroshima bomb goes off and then (laughs) everything comes out. (laughs) So, which isn't good, which isn't good either. So, so yeah, I would say like from London to Rio, one of the biggest things we worked on was like the dynamic of our team, you know, myself, my partner and and our coach spent a lot of time working on our relationship and how we communicate with each other, how we talk to each other, um, how we process things, how we deal with stress, how we deal with nerves all those kind of things so that on the day when you, you know, Nadine would know, like Lee's probably not going to want to be very chitty chatty on the day that we race. So I'm not going to chit chat with her. So, (laughs) you know, she's going to be quiet and I've got to respect that. And if I want to talk, I need to go find someone else to talk to, you know, she would go and talk to the coach and they would have like, she'd get her nervous energy out like that. Whereas I was much more of a reserved person. I wanted to be on my own. I wanted to be quiet. Um, So, so yeah, it's just, you know, learning those things and how to respect each other. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's very interesting that you say that. Um, Cause it sounds like you two are mm. very different. Um, when I was playing rugby at high school and university, when I prepare for matches, I prefer to be calm. Like I don't like to get mm. amped up mm. and 
bang my head into lockers <laughs> and things, you know. I, I take it I'm a very I almost it almost seems like I'm disinterested. Yeah. And there have been times where I think some of my teammates must have looked at me and thought, geez, like this guy doesn't care because he's he's way too chill. The obviously doesn't get to him, or he's not he's not excited mm. about it. But that was just my way. I just was I, in my head. I would just go over all the things that I wanted to do, how I wanted to bring my game together, and I would have almost always have music on, so just to cancel out the noise, and then just be going over what I want to do and. You know, other guys are running around, clapping each other on the back and jumping up and down. And and that used to actually bug me when people used to come and, like, grab me and, like, shake me, try and amp me up. Actually, it pissed <laughs> me off, to be honest. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's just – it's interesting in, in any situation where there's more than one person. You've got to learn each other's dynamic. And eventually, I think it clicks yeah, and you get it right. exactly. Yeah, it's just, it's just respecting each other. I think it come, that's what it comes down to. And once you feel yeah. respected um, – and you've built this trust um, that that you are doing what's right for yourself and for the other person. Then, um, yeah, then you can get on the start line and feel like you you really a solid unit and and you can do whatever needs to be done on on the day. Yeah, yeah, and and I guess it's just another time to reflect that we're mm. not all the same. So, and I think as a younger person, I definitely. It took me a while to realize that, you know, not everyone's like me. So as I got, grew older and grew more more mature, I realized actually in different situations, you have to treat people differently yeah. as you were talking about in terms of men and women. You, it's I, I learned that I did a bit of management when I was working in South Africa and realizing different staff, staff members need completely different ways of motivation yes, exactly. and how to be spoken yeah. to. And So, yeah. Just interesting how it like overlaps into into sport mm, as well. Yeah, for sure. I just wanted to go back on your you talking about injuries mm. in 2010. Were you injury prone? A lot of injuries or not so much? Um, you know, <laughs> people will laugh at me if they hear this, but I like to think I'm not injury prone. But I've had my <laughs> I've had my fair share. I think I think because I'm the kind of athlete that likes to push through injury, which is it's not a good thing, and I'm not. Okay. Um, I don't want to like tell people to do this at all i don't follow suit don't don't follow what i did it was definitely the wrong thing to do but i i always whenever i'm injured i always feel pressure that i should be like out there training and i really struggle with that and i even struggle with it to this day i mean now i don't i don't um like do anything like competitively or too competitively but i even, yeah, if I have like a little niggle or injury, I'm like, no, I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to run through it or, or whatever. And it's a very bad habit of mine. Um, but, and I think that's also why I was, yeah, maybe more injury prone when I was, when I was rowing. Um, I think I also didn't have a very good base when I went into it because I'd been, I hadn't been training or rowing or doing the movement for a very long time. I rushed, I kind of like, yeah, I would say there were a few years where I kind of like rushed the process and then I didn't do the basics okay. right. And I probably didn't row that well, put a lot of pressure on my back when I shouldn't have, um, maybe didn't have the strongest core, wasn't doing the small things right, um, stretching, core work, you know, all that kind of stuff that's like actually really, really important, yeah. gym work. Um, and I think that's also why, yeah, I tended to to pick up some, injuries and obviously one that plagued me for a long time was my back 
And I think once you, especially in rowing, once you get a back injury, um, it's quite difficult to like not never have it, you know, it kind of always is, is there. Um, you obviously have times where it's worse than, than other times. And it was just, it just became about managing it. So I think once I picked that up, um, it, yeah, all through my rowing career, it was just kind of managing it and, um, yeah, making sure that I didn't make it worse basically. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Interesting. And, um, before we move on to, to talking a little bit more about that 2012 Olympics, I just want to ask you, you mentioned back problems. I'm just trying to think mm. as a rower, I'm just trying to think in terms of biokinetics, you're using, you're driving through your legs and your back. And obviously you would be using your arms and stuff to a certain extent, but are the main driving muscles, yeah. legs and back? So it's, yeah, main, main drivers are, are okay. your legs and, um, and your lower back. Yeah. Core area. Yeah. Okay. I'm just trying to think of technique, and I can imagine, yeah, if you've got a if you've got a bit of a, a pain, if you've got a back pain issue, mm. yeah, it's going to be very hard to 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 uh, mitigate that when you in that position and pulling like that. Yeah, because wow, you're in that. Yeah, you're kind of in that seated position, in that 90 degree seated position, and then you every stroke you're driving into your lower back, you know. So you're driving into it and then you're kind of hinging off the back of your hips as well. So you're opening your back up and then that puts even more pressure, like coming down onto your lower back. So it's just kind of that hinge movement from, you know, rocking over your hips all the time. So your hips as well take a little bit of strain. I actually did have an operation on my hips as well, on my my one hip that I had an injury on. So, so yeah, it is, um, it's because of the, you do, yeah, that you're doing the same movement over and, and, and I mean, I know in some sports you like running same movement over and over again, but with rowing, it's like particularly just like magnified and that you just like, it's just the same day in, day out yeah. in the boat on the rowing machine. It's harsh. It's, it's hard on the back. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just hard on the body. Like your body just gets. The times in, in your training blocks where you just feel so broken, you've, just your whole body's sore, and you just you don't know what to do with yourself. <laughs> I think yeah. also maybe another thing, maybe I'm wrong here, but I'm just thinking about runners. The human body is designed to run. You, you know, we, mm. we, we bipedal. Uh, we're pretty good mm. endurance athletes, so we we designed to run. Whereas rowing is definitely not a natural movement. It's not something that mm. you know people you don't really do that movement from yeah. day, day to day. So it could also just be yes. sort of underdeveloped muscles from an evolutionary point exactly. of view as well. Yeah. Yeah. Not natural. Yeah. Okay. And then I just wanted to ask quickly before we move on to the, the 2016, I want to ask about the 2012. So um, how far did you guys get? Uh, how close were you? Did you make the final or if you didn't, how close were mm. you to getting there? Um, was it a f- small margin? And how does rowing work? You know, do, is it, the top times that go through per heat or is it the top mm. two and then the next three best times? How does the whole process yeah. work when it comes to rowing? Yeah. So it, it is on placements. Um, so you usually have it's so, so it's six lanes. A final would be um, six boats. It'll be six boats in a final. And depending on how many entries you have, you'll have like a final, B final, C final, D final, da 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 da. It can go on. depending on how many entries you have but obviously you want to get in the a final then you're in the top six and then you know once you're in the a final anyone has a shot at 
a medal. So that's that's where you want to be. Um, Sorry, Lee, can I quickly interrupt you there? Yeah. Uh, I just want to ask a question. So if you make the A final, yeah, um, is that the only final that can win medals? So if I make B finals, even if I have a faster time than A final finisher, I can't win the medal because I didn't make the A final. Correct, yeah. Okay, okay. All right, I was just trying to yeah. understand that. Okay, sorry, continue. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so you race, um, again, depending on how many entries you have, you race a heat, and then it'll be like top one go through or top two go through or top three go through, not often top three. But, um, but yeah, if you're, going from the, if you're going from the heat to the semifinal, top two will go through, and then you'll race, and there'll be a repercharge where, like, the, top two from that rep will go through and then you'll get your top six um from the two heats and then top two from the repercharge will go into the a final so that's a kind of like basic how it works but obviously if there are more entries there can be like a quarter final even and then okay. only a semi-final and then still a repercharge so it's really it's really dependent on entries um as to how the progression works but but yeah it's usually with placements and then sometimes they have to take into consideration um time when they're doing, you know, repercharges and, and stuff like that. But, but yeah, very much down to placement. Um, and then, yeah, London, we, we made the B final, so we didn't make A final. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I can't even remember where we came in, like the heat or the rep or whatever, okay. but it's like <laughs> I think I've blocked it out of my mind. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, we just we came second in the B final, so we got okay. – eighth place overall which is not it's not bad but it's not it's not great it's um it's fine are you I would say. It's fine. are you are you extremely competitive you sound quite <laughs> yeah. competitive okay okay no i, I know. am so <laughs> so i know where you're coming from because i am as well yeah. so you know i know that feeling when you come back from an olympics and, you, and everyone's like oh but you came eighth you know it's your first olympics you should say and you're like oh well no it's not good enough or it's not what we yeah. wanted so i get where you're coming from yeah yeah, and it was difficult as well. The, the other t uh, boat class that we went to was the men's lightweight four, and they won gold. Okay. So to put that into perspective for you, they, the people that you're training with go and win gold, you get eighth. It's like, ugh, this is like, it's like just you know, you just even more of a yeah. downer. <laughs> yeah, you just like can't explain the feeling. So there was like, yeah, there's a lot going on during that time for us, but um but yeah i think again like we spoke about it going home getting perspective um taking time to look back on, on on it and all that kind of stuff like obviously we did take a lot from it um but it was just it was just one of those things that was it was a hard experience for us it was a hard a hard time yeah I can and imagine. that's also okay um but but yeah it was it was difficult and yeah. would you are you a generally a positive person does that kind of stuff uh knock you down for a long time or do you bounce back quite quickly from from defeat um i do i do struggle kind of for the first few days if i'm okay. if i don't get kind of the thing that i then i want perspective always helps me so talking to people about it um time those kind of things always help and I always come around, but I can take, I can take disappointment quite hard. Um, I'm very hard on myself. I get very disappointed in myself and my, 
own ability or my own, um, yeah, my own result and what I was able to give or what I wasn't able to give or how I performed. So I think I'm my own worst critic. Um, and so it's just me sitting with me basically and sitting with my own thoughts. And once I get over myself, then, you know, then I can make it through and then I start to make new goals and I, and then I, you know, say, okay, it wasn't actually as bad as I thought it was, but I think very much at the time I can be quite hard on myself and I can get quite down and negative, but I always, I always come around. Yeah. That's, that's very interesting because I'm, I'm very hard on myself, but I don't know why, but I've, I'm very quick to turn around and go back to the drawing board and then try mm. and figure out what I've done wrong and try and fix it. Mm. But I'm also, um, even in, even at work, my, when I was working in Cape Town, my manager would often say to me, you need to be, you need to be less critical of yourself. You're doing fine. Um, so mm. very, very, but it's very difficult because I think, to me, it's a it's a natural trait. I don't think uh, that it's something that that I developed. I think it's I think I was born that way. Like I'm, I just I always push myself to be the best, and when I let myself down, that's when I come down on myself quite hard. Yeah, for sure. And it, it, I mean, it was just um, I was thinking now, like it's it's not that I I I don't um, it's not I would say like negative in a detrimental way it's just I just need the time to um, process what's happened I think that's that's what I always need some time for but it often fuels me so like a bad result or not achieving what I want to achieve usually does light a fire for me to go come back and and try harder Um, so it is a motivator for me it's definitely I mean, doing well is also a motivator, but often doing badly is a bigger motivator. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, it definitely motivates me, but I definitely take take time to um, probably take a bit more time than most people to process things and, and come around, yeah. Okay, interesting. And then maybe you can talk to me a little bit about what you did differently going into the 2016 game because you said obviously that mm. was a bit different. And I actually saw mm. your your results. You you actually perform better as well. So maybe you can mm. speak a, about the process of going to the twenty sixteen games, and then we can follow that up with, uh, we, as we said from the in the beginning, tr- how you wanted to, or how you went about transitioning out of the sport and the challenges that you faced there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So twenty sixteen, we, I mean, I think we came back from twenty twelve and just like we're never gonna. We're not going to do this the same way. We're going to do things differently. We're going to look after ourselves. We're going to look after our mental health. We're going to look after our relationship as a team. Um, and we're going to talk openly and honestly about things, how we're feeling, how we're going, where we're at. Um, we're going to look after our bodies. <laughs> we, we're just going to do everything to the best of our ability. So it was a massive mind shift change. Um, do all the small things right. Uh, we started, or I started seeing a sports psychologist. Eventually, we started seeing a sports psychologist as a team, so all three of us. Um, we changed coaches, which was probably beneficial for us. Um, we just, yeah, it just wasn't a good match with the coach that we had at, at London. Um, and so, yeah, we got a new coach, and we just did things better. I think as a whole team, we did things better. So, so South African rowing just grew after London. We obviously got... Okay some sponsorship we had a little bit more money um and um yeah we just really got 
a really good program going. And so I think that also helped. The whole team was in a better space and everyone was kind of walk, working towards the same thing. Um, and, and so, yeah, everyone was just kind of much more on the same page and we had a lot more support. So we really used those resources that, that were given to us a lot better. Um, and yeah, just try to build that kind of team unit, you know, it's like the three of us, the coach and the, obviously the two of us that were in the boat, um, you know, how do we make the best team? Um, cause at the end of the day, like this is where the work, work happens is that with us three and we need to trust each other. We need to trust we're all doing the right thing. Um, and that was, yeah, that wasn't only in the gym or on the water, but also in our heads. Um, that was really important to us that mentally we were strong mentally. We knew how each other worked. We knew how to, um, kind of be when we were, or be, I don't know what the right word is, but basically when we got to racing and we got nervous or whatever, like how do we manage that? Yeah, how do we manage racing nerves? I think that was like a big one for me. It was something that I, I struggled with a lot, um, was okay. managing nerves and it was something I had to work on really hard. So that was a big one for me. Um, and yeah, so it was just a much, we would just went into Rio much stronger as a unit, as athletes, mentally experience wise obviously in those four years we did a lot more racing um and and yeah it was it was just a lot different the only kind of thing i guess that happened um was right before rio basically the year 2016 um we i changed partners again so i rode with the same person from london all the way to like the end of 2015 i would say or, or kind of yeah last few months of 2015 and then um, she actually got sick. Um, I think she had like bronchitis or something like that, like quite quite a bad illness. And okay. there was another girl who'd come and was like, she just wanted to give it a shot and see if she could maybe make the team. And I think she'd been training with the squad for maybe a year or so. And then, um, yeah, and then obviously the, like the, the position kind of opened up because she was like my partner was sick. Um, and then we had some more trials and we had some water trials and the boat started to go faster with this new person. So they actually, yeah, we, I changed partners literally three months or four months before the Olympic games. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. It was a wild time. Um, it was a very daunting time. And I remember we were actually at a training camp in Lesotho when it happened, when they kind of announced, okay, this is going to be the new combination. And, we got in the water. So the new combination, we got in the water, went for a row, and it was probably the worst row I'd had in about yeah, in <laughs> two or three years. And I was like, we've done the wrong thing. We've done the wrong thing. This is horrible. But it, it turned out just to be kind of like we none of us had really processed the that this was, you know, that this was gonna change. And I think we were all just just quite tense so like, and and yeah, some the, teething teething problems as yeah. well. Like just finding yeah, each exactly. other's groove yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay. But but yeah, in the end, it turned out turned out for the best, and and yeah, I mean, I mean, Rio was just like such a completely different experience for us. Like we went there, we felt prepared, we felt ready. Um, you know, sat on the start line. Like there's nothing else we could have done to get to this point, and it was just a completely different um, experience. And it's, yeah, it was amazing. Okay, so that's fascinating because. Clearly, those are two completely different experiences. 
London and Rio. Um, and it just shows you how, what a long way it goes having all that extra support and the time in the water, the extra four years. Um, so I guess the only, not the only big bump in the road is changing partner so soon. I mean, so close mm. to the Olympics. Mm. I still think that's, that's amazing that you guys were able to, to do as well as you did. Cause I, I see from my notes, I, you guys finished fifth, I think in the final. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. I think, you know, like I said to you now, it was like that kind of trust in the team that we'd built through the, through the four years leading up to Rio, um, helped with that because you kind of go like, I know my coaches are making the right decision. I have to trust them. Like I've built this trust with them all these years for all these years. This is the thing that we've been working on. They're going to make the best decision for us for the boat. Um, and I've got to trust that. And I think that helped with that kind of last minute change. Cause I, even though I was kind of, it felt so daunting, so immensely daunting. I was like, in the back of my mind, I was like, but it's the right thing. I know it's, you know, it, it has to be the right thing. They wouldn't do this if it wasn't the right thing. So yeah. it was just did, that, yeah, that trust in the team that you have to have. You were talking about the changing coaching staff. Do you, ha- do you think, I mean, I know it's obviously difficult to say because it's if and buts and all those things, but do you think that if the coaching staff had been the previous regime, the, the, the people that you didn't really click with, do you think you would have trusted their decision had they had they made that decision and then you went out in the water and it didn't go as well, would you have then maybe stepped back and thought, oh my word, they've made the wrong decision? Do you think that that would have played into it at all? Yeah, it's it's so hard to say because it's not. It was just our actual coach that changed. It wasn't it wasn't the whole coaching staff, but okay. Um, I think after London, we we had lost trust in in our coach at the time, so I think to build that again would have been very difficult. Um, okay. so I just think it probably wouldn't have worked. I, I, yeah, I think we, I, I think we had to change coaches early on in, in, in the cycle. Right. Otherwise we would have, yeah, it, it just wouldn't have worked. Yeah. It's interesting how everything just seemed to click into place a mm-hmm. lot better the second time around. Yeah. And obviously must've helped having been through an Olympics before, maybe just wasn't as, overwhelming as the as london was definitely yeah that that initial olympics is so important and and i think it's almost something like i wish more people went to that their first olympics you know without any expectation because even though everyone goes to olympics for different reasons some people go to compete some people go to win medals um and that's fine um but i think everyone needs an olympics where they just go there where they don't have pressure on them to perform you know, it's like this is your pass. Just experience it, compete at this stage, um, learn what it's all about, and you never know. Maybe you do perform. You don't know. Yeah. But it's almost just like you want to have that. And not everyone can afford to have that kind of Olympics, but it would be nice if, if, if you could because, um, you know, not everyone's careers can, you know, expand through three Olympic cycles or whatever it is. But um it's yeah, it's just going in there with the right rights the right mindset to get the best the most out of it, I guess, is is the bottom line. Okay. And then after the Olympics, uh, the Rio Olympics, did you continue to row much longer after that? Or did you did you hang up the boots using the sports cliche <laughs> quite soon after that? 
Um, so not soon after, too soon after, I, I actually funding became quite a big, big problem after the Olympics. Okay. We kind of were told that funding was going to be put in place until the end of the year, until the end of 2016. So we, none of us were too concerned to just kind of coast through to the end of 2016, which is what you kind of need. Um, you know, Olympics is usually July. Um, and then you need about three months to like, uh, kind of like come down from the high of it and then kind of, you know, decide what you want to do next. But unfortunately we got back from the games and were given about two weeks to make a decision about whether we would commit to another cycle or not, which was massive. And if we didn't commit, our funding was going to be pulled. So, yeah, so it was it was a very difficult time for a lot of us and a very stressful time for a lot of us because obviously a lot of us had relied on that funding to get us to the end of the year. Um, so yeah, luckily I'd actually applied for a job um, just before Rio because I had a feeling that finances were going to be an issue for me. So I had something in place, which I then started started with, um, coaching at, at one of the schools in Joburg, which was quite lucky for me. Um, but from there, yeah, my year kind of spiraled downwards. I would say I, I, um, yeah, my family were going through some tricky time. Um, me and my boyfriend at the time were going through a very hard time. Um, I wasn't in a good space. I was dealing with a lot of emotional stuff that I'd kind of been suppressing, um, because I just was focused on, on the Olympics and, um, yeah, like my 2017 year, I actually got, yeah, I, I went through some quite bad depression um, okay. and, yeah, I just lost motivation to exercise. <laughs> I was probably partying a bit hard. I was um, <laughs> eating really badly. I was, yeah, it was not, not, it was probably one of my worst years, I would say. Um okay. And Sounds a lot like my 2010. <laughs> yeah, I had it a was. bad, bad 2010. It, it, yours, it, like everything you've just described, yeah. pretty much sums up my 2010. So yeah, I, 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 I maybe not identical to yours, but yeah, can relate. I can, I think I got the yeah, I can relate big time. Like exactly. same thing, girlfriend, girlfriend, and I were on the rocks. Um, family problems, uh, failing law school, mm. uh, couldn't. Got a, got a knee injury playing rugby, so couldn't even couldn't even take out my frustration on the on the sports field. Um, yeah, and then same thing, way drinking way too much, um, definitely eating badly. So yeah. yeah, it's it's interesting that you had that like a similar experience. Yeah, um, and and I think I just and I hadn't made the decision to retire yet. I was kind of trying to. I was like on and off rowing. I was like doing a little bit of rowing, doing a little bit of training. Then I lost motivation. Then I tried to do it again. So it was very. I couldn't get into a routine, um, which obviously is is like terrible for someone who's trying to like. I didn't even know. I like I wasn't even working towards something. I didn't know. Like I just felt like I'd lost direction. That year, yeah. I had no direction. I had no goals. I had no whatever, anything to work towards. Um, and yeah, and then eventually I just, I think, you know, I can't even remember when I actually retired. I probably have to go look back at like an Instagram post or something. I probably did it there. Um, but <laughs> but I I think it was the end of 2017. I, I kind of called it quits and I said, um, okay. no, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I, I can't, I can't pull myself 
kind of towards myself right now to even think about training at that level again. Um, and yeah, I just started to prioritize other things in my life. Um, and my family was a massive one. Um, my parents yeah, went through a very bad time. I realized that I hadn't spent kind of any time with them in the last kind of six years, seven years. I'd, li- I'd been living in Pretoria. They were in Cape Town. I'd hardly seen them. Um, and I just felt like I'd missed out on so much of my, yeah, of what was actually happening in, in my life. Um, I was kind of in this other world in my head, training and focusing on the games. And there was actually so much other stuff happening that I hadn't, hadn't focused on. And I just started to, you know, think about what is actually a priority in my life. And mm, my, the bigger picture. yeah, the bigger picture and, and family for me was a massive one. And I said, this is a priority. I need to get back to Cape Town. I need to spend time with my parents um, and just reassess. And then, um, and yeah, finances, again, massive. I just, I just couldn't afford to, yeah, I couldn't afford it. <laughs> I just, okay. I was, yeah, not in a good space financially. And I couldn't ask my parents for more money. And that's was where I was okay. at, yeah. When they say they will be funding do they look after you completely in terms of your food and housing all that stuff is that what funding means or is it more like all the stuff related to the sport you don't need to worry about and then you just need to look after yourself how does the how's that whole funding situation work yeah so our sponsors um yeah we had really good sponsors leading up to rio r&b um very very lucky to have them they kind of made sure that we could travel go on camps um you know, like coaching, coaches were paid for, um, gym okay. contracts. Um, I think we got some supplements, um, kit, that kind of stuff. Like, but that was a sp- okay. an outside sponsor that, that covered all of that. So that was massive. And is that private, privately funded or government yeah, funded? Privately funded. So, so it was, okay. yeah. Um, Rand Merchant Bank were our, were our sponsor. Um, and they, yeah, okay. so it was a private sponsor, um, which is obviously massive because an overseas tour can cost you oh, 50 grand, you know. Um, so it's okay. so they were making sure that we could go on those tours, race overseas, all that kind of stuff. And then government funding was um, was just nice. <laughs> it was <laughs> around 6,000 rand a month. Um, and okay. they covered um, – I was actually telling someone other, the other day, they cover – your medical aid, your cell phone bill, your food, and your petrol. And, oh, wow. um, okay. yeah, and we had to even supply like a receipt to show that we'd spent the money. So it was, okay. it was hard work and for basically not a lot of money. So you can imagine we weren't, we weren't yeah. making anything. No one had a savings account open that we were putting money into. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, when, yeah, they don't even cover your rent. Um, so it, it was just, it was a crazy time. It was, a, it was, yeah. And obviously those kind of things. So like no one's covering rent, you're not earning a salary. So your parents are then covering rent. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's a tough one. Yeah. So yeah, it's just getting to that point where you like, I can't, I literally can't ask my parent, my family for any more money. Like it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's, um, to me, it's always so upsetting in a way that, that, that those kind of situations exist. Um, I know we said before we started the podcast, we chatted a bit offline, and I was telling you a bit about my other guest, Natalie DeToy, mm. and she also went through something similar, you know. It just seems like a, 
a recurrent theme, especially in some of the smaller sports in South Africa. Uh, um, my sister, you know, obviously, you know, yeah. Jay, my sister, she, same thing with the ladies' water polo, um, always struggling with money. I think there was one time with the water polo team that the South African government just turned around and was like, well, we don't have funding. And so the woman's side can't go to <laughs> one of the tournaments. It's like, what? Yeah. what? Mm. Crazy. Um, and then another thing is that because water polo is a team sport, it knocks on. So if the team member can't afford to go, then someone who's not the best player who can afford to go makes the team. So then also it dilutes the team a little bit at the tournament yeah. because only the people with the money can have, that can afford to go can actually make the side. And it's obviously it's not a great a great position to be in. You're rocking up at the World Championships with like a depleted team. Yeah. No, it's it's um funding is a massive thing in, in South Africa and it obviously adds to the politics of, of it all. Um and yeah, it's just yeah. unfortunate that it cuts people's careers short because um it shouldn't. So yeah, it makes yeah, makes me really. upset. <laughs> <laughs> I can hear yeah, very passionate about it. It's good though. Um it's just I just find it so crazy that you know do, do you as the athletes, are you guys involved in that whole process of help trying to help find funding or is it handled by the, the body? Yeah, we can, yeah, we can definitely help try funding, like try find funding. I mean, any contacts you have, like everyone tries, you know, they're like, even if you, even if it's just like a kit sponsor or someone like a contact that you have and you're like, Oh, can you do this? Or like, you know, would you mind sponsoring us, you know, some sunglasses or whatever it is, or like supplements or, whatever you just you use whatever you have it's not um i mean yeah we always try and use contacts but obviously once it gets to like the point of actually getting big funding like from r&b or whatever then obviously the yeah the body kind of takes over the federation takes over with that and and they make that partnership but but that's been a really good one from rowing south africa and they really yeah they definitely changed the game for us so that was a massive partnership to have or still have they're still they're still on board yeah oh nice okay. yeah um maybe maybe we can talk about your difficulties and your challenges going from rowing and back into as we were saying earlier like a normal life or a or in back into reality from rowing yeah um and then maybe we can we can wrap it up because i don't want to steal too much of your time okay cool um yeah i mean i think for me the transition was difficult more in the sense of like my identity as a, as a person or as an athlete. I think that was the hardest thing that I struggled with is that, that for such a long time I'd be seen as, you know, Leanne, the rower or the Olympic rower or however you want to say it. But um, that was like my massive struggle is that like, who am I now if I'm not rowing? Like, who am I? What can I do? What am I good at? Um, will people see worth in me? Um, it, it was basically just like questioning myself. And I think I lost a That's, lot of, a lot of confidence, um, within the transition. Sorry, Lee, to interrupt you there. Um, just reminds me of the conversation I had with Jade on the podcast. Um, so she wouldn't, won't mind me talking about it here. Uh, she said something so similar with her when it came to putting on weight. Mm. So, she was always sporty, healthy, uh, obviously did a couple of the bodybuilding shows, so got in 
uh, I think she'd admit the first show she was even too skinny, and then the second show she looked really good and healthy. Um, and when she put on all that weight, she said, you know, my whole identity was wrapped in to the fact that I was sporty and, and thin and lean and active. And now, like, I don't even know who I am anymore because I'm 30, 40 kilos overweight. So it's interesting that you guys, that there's that identity factor that overlaps there. And it's clearly like a huge mental, um, has huge mental implications on the athlete. Yeah. Or on the person. Yeah, for sure. Um, and yeah, it definitely changes how you see yourself and how you think other people see you. It's all a perception thing. Is, and that's what I really struggled with yeah. is that I had a lot of um, my worth in other people and what they thought of me. And that's very dangerous um, because, because I had lost so much confidence in myself and my ability outside of rowing. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what I could do. I didn't know what I was good at. I kind of only if people told me I was good at something that wasn't rowing, then I was like, I took that and I was like, okay, cool. I'm good at that. I'm good at that. But it's only because someone else told me. So I okay. was in. So I was looking for validation yeah, look, from yeah. the outside rather than getting it from you, from yourself. Exactly. I didn't know kind of how to build my confidence up again. And I'm even going to say like now I, I still struggle a little bit with it. It's still, I still am not quite where I want to be in terms of like my own confidence in myself and my abilities. I've obviously done a lot of, work on it and but I think it will be something that I continuously work at probably throughout most of my life um just because of yeah of of that identity kind of issue that I struggled with so okay and and that's fine I think I've got I've gotten comfortable with it now I've gotten comfortable with the fact that I'm working on it and I know I'm making progress on it um and and yeah I think as the years go, obviously things get easier. You start to make new new friends and you have new friendship groups and you meet new people. And then slowly your identity drifts away from the rower because you're not um, socializing with those people anymore. You don't see them that much anymore. You're not in that group, you know? So that also helps. Yeah. Um, and once, you, once you're venturing out and learning new things and doing new things, that identity starts to maybe melt away yeah. a bit and you start to see yourself as a more – rounded complete person exactly as well. no yeah exactly that's 100 percent. and and yeah now doing different sports or whatever it is now i'm like trail running a lot so that's also helping and now i'm finding like okay. new outlets in life um which helps but i think the kind of important thing for me as well just to go back to like the transition is that um and we spoke about a little bit like some people really struggle with it some people find it easier but i think it comes down to kind of the how you set up for it or how you supported in it. Um, and for me, it was quite like a sudden thing. I hadn't thought about it at all. I hadn't prepared myself for it. And so it just happened. And I was like, what is happening? I don't understand what's going on. Like, this is a shock to the system. Your body almost goes through like kind of shock. Cause it's like, this is, I haven't prepared for this. I haven't prepared my mind for this. Okay. I haven't, you know, and I also felt like, in terms of, of our, the support we got from our rowing federation or from the support team, like we didn't get a lot of support in that, in that area. Like I think they helped us in terms of like we went to some, I think, some like career specialists or something like that and they helped us like with our CV and maybe to look at some options for jobs. But the, I kind of that's as far as it got. Um, and okay. 
but there's no support in terms of like your mental health. And that's what suffers the most, you know, like yeah. as a person and like your confidence and okay, where'd I go to now? Can someone just like hold my hand for a little bit? Can someone just, um, you know, can I just feel like someone's got me? Uh, Cause you feel yeah. so alone. Like those of you who have decided to stop, you just, even though you've all decided to stop together, you're still alone in your, in your decision. And then those people who are carrying on, you're watching them kind of carrying on and moving towards the next cycle. And you're like, what am I doing? Like, where am I going? What do I do now? This is, yeah, you just feel lost. It's a whole, whole basket of self-doubt. Yeah. yeah. That's, no, that's, that's very difficult. Um, and, What's fascinating to me is what you are describing. I watched a podcast with a guy called Chris Williamson. Mm. I always shout him out if I bring up his name because I really enjoy his podcast. He His first ever episode uh, was many, many years ago, I think three years ago, um, and it was with a mate of his who actually was going to row the Atlantic, I think, yeah, the Atlantic, okay. uh, from Portugal to South America somewhere. Okay, amazing. And, and he... Unfortunately, I think he had boat problems quite early on, so he had to cancel, and I think he's trying to do it again. But he was talking about being a military guy, and he left the military. And since he left the military, he still is involved with support groups and things like that for guys who are struggling to transition back into society from the military. And he said – it's so interesting. He said exactly what you said. He said it's not the physical aspect that people – struggle with you know like the the getting up in the morning mm. and going to work it's the mental mm. mental aspect of like one day people are shooting at you and the next day you're now expected to just ease back into society without any problems yeah um and he, he even went on to talk about there's actually there's i, th- I think he explained there's whole programs of reintegrating into society but none of the programs include uh, the mental component. I'm not sure if that's changed now because, as I said, that was three mm. years ago. So maybe they've they've caught on to it and they've put put things in place. But it's amazing how how those similarities um, are there for for people who live outside of the norm of society, and then uh, no one really thinks about reintegration and the mental aspect of that. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's also. Um Mental health is something that has been a taboo for so long and people don't feel comfortable yeah. talking about it. And that's also the problem. That's also a massive problem is why we don't talk about it. And people feel like they shouldn't, it shouldn't be a struggle, especially as an athlete. We feel like, okay, we should, we should always be strong. We should always be able to do what we want to do. We don't complain. We're not weak. We, you know, those kind of words get thrown around and then um, yeah. you take that on and then you feel like you can't, express yourself emotionally because it's showing weakness. So there's all that kind of stuff that's like associated with it. But like the more we talk about mental health, the more we make it normal, um, we're all going through it. Like you can't tell me yeah. that, that, you know, there's not stuff that you struggle with inside of your own head. <laughs> um, so I think it's, it's just making it, it's making it okay to like not be okay. Um, it's, yes. there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with seeing a psychologist. There's nothing wrong with reaching out for help. These things are, shouldn't be seen as, as negative things. Um, but we've made them into negative things and like frowned upon actions. And we, we need to change that. Um, so yeah. the more people who need to find ways, 
Yeah, go for it. Ways to incentivize that. Yeah. Sorry. You know, the more people who talk about it openly about it and what they're doing and how they do it, the better and more comfortable others will feel with it. So I think that's the most important thing is athletes is to speak openly and honestly about your own experiences and make other people feel okay with what they're going through. Because the more you talk about it, the more people you talk to, I promise you now, they always come back and be like, oh my gosh. I feel the same way. I've been going through the same thing. I can relate. Um, yes, you know, and it's just like, it's, it's crazy how we are all experiencing the same thing, but some people just feel like they can't talk about it. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of high profile individuals at the moment. Uh, the last time I checked, I think uh, Naomi Osaki, Osaka, yeah. the tennis player and the gymnast, her name escapes me oh, now Simone at the moment. Biles. High profile. <clears throat> yes, yes. It's like high profile individuals who have openly sort of talked about their struggles. Yeah. Um, and it's it's interesting. The the backlash, some of them, some people are saying, you know, how is it possible at that level your mind should be like a yeah. fortress <laughs> and you should be able to block it all out. <laughs> and then on the other side, there's the human side, which is like, well, we're all human here, yes. so these things happen. It's it's very, very interesting to watch how different people look at that situation and some people look at them as heroes and some people look at them as like failures. It's Yeah, I mean, like you say, like when you, when you say like that, like your mind should be a fortress. Like when people say that, I'm just like, this is so bizarre because – when we like when we work on our our mental strength i would say to for like events or for performing at a high level or whatever like that like it takes a lot of work it takes a lot of energy um it's really hard to show up every day and be like um motivated and on it and just so ready to do whatever needs to be done but it's also tiring and exhausting and sometimes you get to a point where you're like okay i just i just don't want to do this anymore i just want to I just want to breathe and I just want to let it go. And that's, you know, kind of when you got to look after your mental health. So it's like almost two different things. Like we can have, we can be mentally strong when we need to, but also gets to a point where we have to like find the balance between the two. We have to find like, are we actually looking after our mental health? Are we finding the balance of being an athlete at the highest level, but then also being able to express our emotions and actually just admit when we need to take a break and we're struggling. So it's, yeah, yeah, it's a bit of a, like a seesaw effect, but, um, but yeah, like your mind should not be a fortress. It's a, (laughs) it's a, you look after it. Like it's, um, it does a lot for us, but it's also, you know, can be exhausting and it's okay for athletes to sometimes just be like, I need a break and that's okay. Yeah. 100%. And I think also um, there must be a component there of sort of compartmentalization. So Mm -hmm. you probably find that in the moment of the sporting event, mentally you're psychologically strong in the moment. But then maybe I'm just thinking to myself, maybe because of all that sort of strain and stress being contained, there's going to come a point in time, maybe it's not actually that you're strong, maybe it's that you – also hiding it a bit, you're hiding your weaknesses and things because you don't want people to see inside your head and think, oh, that person's mentally weak. And then they can take advantage of you in terms of from a com- competitive aspect, you know, like, oh, that person looks mentally weak, that she's not on top of her game. Um, I can dominate her in this in, in today's event kind of thing. And 
maybe that's the wrong way to go about it. Maybe the way as is your is what you're saying. I, I believe that. I believe that we should talk about these things more mm-hmm. openly. Um, and that's a big reason why I started this podcast. Uh, I lost a couple of friends to suicide uh, a few years ago. And um, both of them, I knew that they were sad, mm-hmm. but they never opened. And one of them was actually, in my opinion, a very close friend. And the saddest thing to me after he was gone was that it made me feel as if he was as good as friends as we were. He never felt comfortable enough mm. to sit with me mm. and talk about it um, because he was, he was a man's man. Mm. So I think it, it was a, you know, an ego slash macho thing where it was difficult for him to come out of his shell and speak to people about it. I think he spoke to his family and, and, and he did speak to specialists and things like that. But, um, so he did have support, yeah. but with his friends and and the the boy the the I don't mm-hmm. want to say the boyfriends with the close guy friends that he had, he he never really opened up with us. And yeah, I think it's really important to to get that message out there. Um, yeah, and another big passion of mine is bodybuilding and in the bodybuilding sport as well, uh, if you can call it that. Some people don't think it's a sport, but I guess that's <laughs> for another day. But there's guys in there that are also you know mentally suffering also high levels of suicide yeah. and things like that. So, yeah, it's Yeah, it's I mean, um, just to like make one more comment, but, you know, we never, you never know what's going on in someone's, in someone's head. Like you, you just never know. Um, and that's also the hard thing, like to think about like mental strength and when you have to be strong and, and those kind of things. Like when I was training and my years as an athlete, like I could literally block out anything and like go to a training session and just like mm-hmm. absolutely give my all, like break myself, like completely just push myself to my limits. Um, and actually the more stuff I was struggling with, like personally or emotionally, the harder I would go in a session. So I'd be like, I don't want to deal with this stuff that is going on on the outside. Um, but I'm going to go now to where I absolutely thrive. And that is in my training. Um, and pushing my body to its limit. So I'm going to go do that as hard as I can, and then I'm going to feel much better. And that's what I did for a long time. I just like my place to get rid of my, well, not rid of my frustration. I never got rid of it. I just suppressed it. That's all I did. I basically like just ignored what was going on personally and emotionally, and I just went harder and harder at my rowing and at my training and that kind of thing. Um, and I think that's also at the end of it, the end, you know, after Rio, when I'd raced and I'd finished and I was like, oh, what now? Everything that I'd suppressed for like so many years came up and just like went poof and like hit me in the face. Um, so suppressing things are, yeah. it's not the way to go. Like you've got to deal with it face on. You can't, you can't hide in your training or in something else. You've got to, yeah, you've got to face it. <clears throat> Yo, that hit me so that hit me so hard because that's literally exactly mm. what I was doing with sports and especially with rugby um, because it's quite physical and I honestly think the big my big the start of the collapse for me when I had my bad year in 2010 was um, the the year before I'd injured my hand uh, on my 20th birthday I was in a nightclub and a lady slipped. And I try to be all charismatic and heroic and I try to catch her from hitting the ground. And she, because I was so drunk, um, she knocked me off balance and I put my hand out 
and I cut my hand super badly. I had to oh be rushed gosh. to hospital. I, I severed oh the tendon, gosh. my tendon in my thumb, like oh. rolled up my arm and everything. It was hectic. And I couldn't that, – that, that was the start, the beginning of the, of the bad times was there. I couldn't, I couldn't play rugby after that for a while. And then slowly but surely, everything else in my life seemed to start going wrong. Um, and within like six to eight months – uh, excuse my French, but then the mm. shit had really hit the mm. fan, and, and everything everything was was up in the air, and it, it was a mess. So, I think I also used sport as like a as an escape from from the things that were going on that I didn't yeah. want to deal with. And I mean, I was twenty years old, uh, so not mentally mature enough to be dealing with certain mm. things, and I didn't value um, seeking mental mm. help at the time because. I just, as a young person, I didn't, I didn't realize how how terrific it can be to go and speak to someone and, and yeah. get that sort of. But I, I did do so years later, and then I was like, wow, I, I kicked myself years later, saying to myself, geez, if I'd done this, you know, three, four years, no, uh, five years ago, I would have been in a yeah. much better shape. Um, so that's where I learned. I mean, I learned from the school of hard knocks in terms of that stuff that you need to go and speak to someone if you're not getting it from your from your mates or your family and and sometimes it's actually easier to go outside of the family and the friends because there's less judgment yeah less like judgment more perspective <laughs> i find always yeah but exactly. but yeah i mean it's it's yeah. it's hindsight um it's always hindsight that gets you you just like if only i'd done this earlier if only i'd done this earlier but i think we we can all say that but like as long as you get to that point eventually um, and see the worth in it, then, um, yeah, then you, you're definitely making progress. Yeah. Yeah. I think you've got to, you've got to do mm. those hard yards yourself. Like I always remember my dad saying things like, um, you know, I do X, Y, and Z so that you don't have to make the same <laughs> mistakes. But sometimes, unfortunately, that's the only way yeah. that we learn is you have to bump your head. Um, and I'm, I think it's important that you experience not not obviously not not crazy crazy things yes. all the time. But I think it's the best way to learn is to actually go through tough times. And it's okay to go through tough times. We all go through tough times. That's just a part of life. And yeah, you got to be you just got to be prepared to to ride that. Yeah, hundred percent. No, I mean life can be a bit of a roller coaster. But but yeah, we always learn. I mean, we don't always learn, but. Uh, I think when you're going through hard times um, and you feel like, oh, there's no light at the end of this tunnel, like there is, and you've just got to give yourself time and you've got to try and look at it in a way like, what can I learn from this? Like, you know, is this about me? Is this about someone else? More often than not, it's about yourself and it's about growing as a person and being like, okay, how do like, how can I be better? How can I improve? How can I look at things differently? How can I, like, I, I think that's something I've learned always like, always look back at yourself um, and how you are yes. taking the situation or how you um, reacting to someone or something um, and first work on yourself and then, you know, whatever, mend relationships with other people or whatever it is. But I think the work always needs to be done with yourself first. And once, once you've done yes. that and, and you're happy with yourself, then um, other things, they will fall into place. On the, on the outside. So I think that's, yeah, yeah. it's really important. And something I've learned 
very recently. So, um, so yeah, it's been very eye-opening for me. <laughs> I think, yeah, that's a, that's a much uh, better positive note to, to wind things down on is that focus on the things yeah. that you can control yeah. first and then worry totally. about the rest. Totally. Yeah. And uh, Lee, before we wrap up, um, I know that you're quite active. You've got a podcast, things like that. Would you like to tell everyone sort of where they can find you um, if you have if you're active on social media? If that's something that you share with your yeah. with people that follow you and stuff like that, would you like yeah. to share some of those things and then maybe of we can course. wrap up? Um, so yeah, I mean, I have personal Instagram at Lee Purse. Um, very much my personal life is on there. Like I post a lot of my running stuff and um, like yeah whatever just daily stuff about my life so if you want to follow me there you are 100% welcome to that it's an open open profile and um yeah just kind of my life's journey on there and then my podcast um yeah in in kind of partnership with um uh um with the girls only project so that's kind of something I started with a a psychologist here in in South Africa she's a, she's in Durban Kirsten van Heerden but yeah, she started the Girls Only Project. She, she asked me to do the podcast for it. Um, and yeah, we massively focus on women in sports. So I, I um, at the moment, only have women on the podcast. Um, it's not sexist, I promise you. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but yeah, basically, I just we just love to hear women's stories, um, what they struggle with as women in their own sport. And we get great perspective on the different sports and how they are progressing or how they're growing or how we're finding quality or how we're not in some places. We have a lot of work to do. Um, and it's really cool because a lot of these women have their own kind of projects going. So yeah, if that's something that interests you, it'd be great to to give it a listen. Um, and that's, yeah, that, uh, I mean, our podcast is on, I think it's on Spotify and Apple podcasts and you can find it anyway. But if you go to the girls, any project Instagram page, a link will be on there as well. Okay. And, and if I'm searching it on Google, do I just type in girls, only project podcast? And um, be able to direct me somewhere? um, I actually haven't Googled it before. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No problem. And and if I jump on Spotify, just is yes, it if Girls you go, Only Project if you and go Girls I should Only find Project okay. podcast yeah. on Google, it gives you the Girls Only Project page and then it, it links to the podcast. So, yeah, it's on there. You can definitely go find it there. Okay, awesome. Thanks so much for, for joining us today, Lee. That's, that, was, that was really nice of you to yeah, give Yeah, awesome. Time. Always, always love to talk about these things. And, yeah, thanks for having me. A final big thank you to Leanne Purse for coming on the show today. And it was such a fantastic conversation. I really, really enjoyed it. And it's so awesome that I get to share it here with you listeners. Just a gentle reminder to go check out Leanne's podcast in partnership with a Girls Only Project. As I said earlier in the show, you can find it using Google or the app that you use to listen to podcasts. And one more big ask from me to my audience. If you could please like, follow, subscribe and share this episode with everyone that you think will gain some value from this conversation. That's everything from my side. And as always, stay lean. <laughs>